Our scripture today comes to us from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to have uh, my grandparents here. They're sitting with a dare right over there, Guy and Jeannie Huffman are here. Uh, my grandmother was an English teacher for a long time, and so she taught me how to talk good. And my <laughs> grandfather uh, was a minister of music in the Methodist Church. And uh, it's so good. They're now, they now live in Lawrenceville, and I'm so thankful that they're here uh, this morning for worship. Uh, two Fridays ago, Adair and I got up early, uh, and we were coming down to Noonan to look at houses. And so, got in the car, and we got on the road, and for 30 minutes, I think, it rained. And we were on 285 headed south, the usual way I always go. We were in the uh, next to left lane, and being careful, I'm a really defensive driver. I was always taught everybody on the road is, is not very smart, so treat them that way. Um, so, we're driving, and the car in front of me started to wiggle a little bit. And then it started to wiggle a lot, and it, then it decided to slam into the median and to do circles real quick. And so I immediately, you know, having both hands on the wheel, put on my best Vin Diesel, Fast and the Furious kind of mode, and just immediately started to slow down, watched another car hit that car, continued to slow down. Everybody was slowing down. It was good. No slamming on the brakes, but slowing uh, to keep from the major accident that was going to occur in front of me. And then it was like time stopped for a moment, and it was all peaceful. And then the guy behind me uh, forgot to watch, and he slammed into us. Only things I remember are we had lids on our coffee cups, by the way, but the co it didn't matter. The coffee was immediately in the air <laughs> in front of us. And then I remember the sound of a, the crunch of a bumper. It's just not a good sound, <laughs> the sound... Uh, and so, luckily, a hero vehicle was right there, saw everything. We pulled over to the side of the road, waited an hour and a half uh, for somebody to get there. And I didn't look at the back of the car until the Atlanta police got there. I just didn't want to do it. And then I, then I got out, and I went to the back, and I looked at it. And it's never, it never does your soul good to see parts of your car hanging from where they're supposed to be. It just it doesn't sit well with you. Um, so I saw, and I knew the car's total. It's done. Look at that. Look at that horrible, horrible damage. Things are hanging where they're not supposed to. This and that, like it's making a weird, funky sound. 
I knew it was done. They had it towed, and I went to see the car this week at the shop, and expecting the worst. And the guy brought me to the car, where there was no bumper anymore, but that solid piece of metal's right there. And he goes, "It's not going to be that bad. Uh, that piece of metal did exactly what it was supposed to do. <laughs> Your bumper's toast, but it's not going to be that much damage." And I thought, "Whew, man! I went from it's over <laughs> to it's not that bad really quick." And that is typically how I think we think of Revelation. (laughs) We see this thing, this book of Revelation, that seems rough and scary and kind of brutal. But if we have somebody there to kind of guide us and point out some things, we realize that maybe the things we think are scary were always supposed to be there, and we just need to know how they function. Maybe it's not as bad as we think it is. I mean, granted, it seems a little scary. There are lots of different symbols and details, and it's pretty hard to read. (laughs) Thomas Jefferson felt strongly that Revelation contained, listen to this, the ravings of a maniac. (laughs) No more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherences of our own nightly dreams. That's what TJ had to say about it. (laughs) Some of you may feel that way, though. And if we're honest, at its core, Revelation is hard to understand because, especially for an individual in 21st century American, Western, capitalist, democratic society. But if you're able to pull back some of the layers, if you're able to do a little bit of digging, I promise it's not that bad. In fact, its message, to me, actually begins to feel pretty encouraging and comforting. You see, at its most basic level, the book of Revelation is a letter from a pastor to his churches who are struggling in the midst of persecution from the Roman state and the Roman emperor. It's a letter that's trying to point people toward a future not filled with hardship and tragedy and fear, but a future filled with hope and redemption and newness and life. Now, state persecution of Christ followers became, really became a thing under Emperor Nero in the mid-first century, but it didn't end with him. One scholar says that Nero had Paul and Peter destroyed, he had them killed, but he really looked at them as more rebellious Jews, seditious Jews. But the later emperor, Domitian, on the other hand, was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement, there stood a figure who threatened the glory of of the emperors. What does that mean? Threaten the glory of the emperors. I'm really glad you asked. If you remember, a little brief history lesson, almost 100 years before Nero, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar died. And if you want to know how, Shakespeare wrote all about it. And after his death, after Julius Caesar died, a comet appeared in the sky. And Julius Caesar's adopted son, Augustus, stepped forward and said, that comet is Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens as a god to sit at the right hand. And if Julius Caesar is God, that makes Augustus the son of what? God. Augustus would declare his own divinity, and his divine purpose was universal peace and prosperity. (laughs) Did you know, I think this is really interesting, uh, to celebrate his coming to power, he held a 12-day festival called Advent, (laughs) in which choirs declared there is no name save Augustus, by which men can be saved. The emperor was divine and was to be worshipped. 
And each emperor after Augustus would take their divinity and kind of make it their own, shape their version of it and how they wanted to be worshipped. This is Roman state religion, so when we talk about the glory of the emperors, we're talking about their own self-characterized divinity. It's their ego, essentially, on full display. Now, as we said earlier, for the Christians, one of the worst enemies was the emperor Domitian, who was in power from about 81 to 96. Domitian was unkind, and that's a nice way of saying it. A gentleman from my last church would put it this way. He would say, he was so mean, he'd steal a dead fly from a blind spider. So Domitian was unkind. Anyone who ever revolted against or disagreed with Domitian uh, was tortured and killed. He once had a heckler fed to the lions for booing at the wrong time. Jews and Christians would occasionally refer to him as a beast. And he wasn't just unkind to his enemies. <laughs> Domitian actually, this is this is an, interesting, demanded that his wife refer to him as my Lord and my God. I haven't been married a year, and I think that's a bold move. (laughs) Domitian took emperor worship to the next level. He had a choir of 24 who would follow him chanting, my Lord and my God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He was the son of gods. He was God. When Domitian was traveling at one point, his propagandist wrote out the following, Morning star, bring on the day. Come soon and let us not be fearful. Rome begs that Caesar may soon appear. The morning star. This guy had a big ego. And I've heard that ego really is just simply a big shield for lots of empty space. But he had one, man. And the last thing I'll say is this. Domitian created his own temple in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, you'll remember, Paul had a church there, a letter to the Ephesians. Those were the people who lived in Ephesus. And Ephesus was this incredible city between two worlds, between the east and the west. Very different cultures, and it had a marketplace, a trade situation between those two worlds. It had an incredible economy. And in order to participate in shopping, or selling, or purchasing goods, or trading, you had to make an offering to the Temple of Domitian, And it's believed that after the offering was made, you would receive a mark. And if you didn't give an offering at the temple, you didn't have a mark, you weren't able to participate in commerce. You couldn't do your job. Who do you think is losing in this kind of arrangement? Any guesses? Christians, Jews, people who have one God? (laughs) In 95 AD, Domitian is, is making life hard for Christians, and he gets word of a man from Ephesus. We're told it's a Hebrew named John. And this Hebrew man has been preaching against Roman state religion and the God status of the emperor and the way of doing business in Ephesus. And John is advocating for major civil disobedience. So Domitian has this Hebrew priest named John brought to Rome. He examines him, he tortures him, and then he sends him away, banishes him to Patmos, which is an island for convicts. And for John, this means war. And it's once John is banished to this island that he writes of his vision, the revelation of John. And it's filled with imagery declaring that Jesus Christ is the true king. Jesus Christ is the true Caesar. Jesus 
is the actual my Lord and my God. Jesus is the one surrounded by 24 elders declaring, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Jesus is the bright and morning star, and the mark of Jesus carries much greater weight and truth and destiny than the mark of some beastly ruler. The mark of Jesus may not help you in the marketplace, but it certainly will allow you entrance and participation in the holy kingdom to come. So, now that you know a little... Now that you know that John's vision is revelation is a takedown, a little bit of a takedown of Domitian and Roman religious culture. It's also a narrative of the war between selfish Caesar and selfless Christ. I want you to still remember that this whole vision, this prophetic word, is still a letter from a pastor to his churches in the midst of this war, in the midst of suffering. It's a vision of the victory of Jesus versus the anti-Jesus the Antichrist. And here John is trying to give his churches, his friends, and likely his family, an empowering word to maintain the course, to keep going, to not give up, for a new day is coming. This won't be forever, he says. The current way of life, the current struggle, day in and day out, will eventually come to an end. Of course, John's vision does contain some scary images, Some scary things like dragons and angels and fire and lots of math. But in those images, we read the message that Caesar will actually not triumph in the end. Evil won't win. The victory is held, and this is the image from Revelation. I love this image. The victory is actually held by the wounded lamb. The crown does not belong on the head of some self-deified, insecure man. The crown does not belong to a self-important tyrant who destroys his enemies with the snap of his fingers. The crown belongs to one who does not destroy his enemies, but rather to one who gives his life for them. The lamb. And eventually in this grand odyssey, in this momentous vision, uh, John sees the evil ones cast out. God will, in fact, judge evil. Evil will lose Love and goodness and righteousness will be recognized. Forgiveness and mercy will rule. And in today's passage, chapter 21, John begins his ending. This is his finale. That's where we're at. And what does John see? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and the voice from the throne says, God will dwell once again with everybody. Every tear will be wiped dry. Death is no more. Mourning, crying, pain are gone. And God declares, I am making all things, what? New. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. A new heaven and a new earth. (laughs) That sounds nice. I wonder what else we might add to that list that we just read of the tears wiping away, the pain being done with. I'm making all things new, disease and hospital beds and shocking diagnoses and the failure of the physical body will be things of the past. Cancer, strokes, heart attacks, dementia, Alzheimer's, no more. Discrimination, depression, despair will be gone like flipping a light switch. Dictators will be unable to continue that manner of leadership. Those who train up children to be soldiers in parts of the world, they'll disappear. Leaders who invade borders, systemic and individual prejudice evaporate. Heartbreak and frustration and miscommunication will be things of the past. 
I wonder what else you might add to that list that God might wipe away. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort that in the midst of the great suffering and the suffering of his friends and family and churches at the hands of evil power, when he's nearing the end of his rope, John sees a vision from God, not of desolation, but of restoration. He has a dream, not of things as they are, but of things as they were meant to be. And he imagines what life will be like, not when Domitian is finished, but when God is finished. John sees a future where compassion and humility and light and love will one day lead of a holy city, of a moment when a voice cries out, I will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Grief will stop. Crying will cease. Pain will end. I find it comforting. Two weeks ago, uh, Adair's uncle, Alan Swayze, uh, passed away. Alan was 55 when he died. He was a Mississippi boy. That's where Adair is also originally from. And Alan was from Mississippi, the youngest of four, who went to medical school and became an orthopedic surgeon, just like his older brother Scott, my father-in-law. And Alan would marry Rhonda, and together they would have four boys. They moved around some, but they would ultimately land in Canton, where Alan would have the pleasure of working with his brother Scott in the same practice for years, replacing hips and knees and shoulders. Scott was here at the 8.30 service, and I told the whole congregation, if, you need any, if you've got any questions about joint pain, he's right here. Um, I asked my father-in-law yesterday, was it fun to work with your little brother? And he just smiled and said it was the best. At the memorial service Friday, people spoke of Alan's humility and his work ethic, but more than anything, they spoke of his laugh. He had a smile a sense of humor that put people at ease, and it was infectious too. You couldn't help but join in. It's always funny how somebody's sense of humor, you can't really replicate it, but you know it. And about, I think around seven years ago, Alan came face to face with his Roman emperor, his source of suffering and hardship. He was diagnosed with something called multiple systems atrophy, and he began to lose his abilities. He had to stop operating. He retired early. He slowly lost the ability to speak and to walk. And when I met him for the first time two years ago, Alan had lost most of his abilities. He had, but he had yet to lose the ability of presence. You could tell his eyes, he was still with you. And his laugh stuck around too. I don't know if that's involuntary or what, but he could still laugh. <laughs> he might not be able to communicate, but he could still laugh. I remember before Alan passed, I was in the car with Adair's dad, Scott, and started talking about Alan, kind of the history of this disease, the timeline, the struggles. Scott would visit his brother most Thursday evenings for about the last five years. And Scott mentioned that he was occasionally visited by dreams in his sleep. And in those dreams, he would see his younger brother, Alan, walking, talking, joking, being the man he still was but wasn't able to physically be. And Scott and Alan would talk and laugh and play and be the way they were before the disease. And I remember Scott said, it's weird. I don't know if it's just that I've been thinking about him a lot lately. I don't know why I dream that or how that happens. Maybe God's, it's God's way of reminding me of the past, of good memories. Or maybe it's God's way of sharing with me a vision of the future. 
We celebrated Alan's life on Friday. We grieved and we mourned and we celebrated his life and his future. The vision of healing that my father-in-law had received glimpses of visions of hope and renewal and restoration and I thought of another vision of no death and disease and grief and sadness, of a new heaven and a new earth. And I thought of John's revelation, but I also remembered some of John's inspiration. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 65. Pay close attention now, he says, for I am creating new heavens and new earth. Past events won't be remembered. They won't come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating because I am creating Jerusalem as a joy in her people, as a source of gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad about my people. No one will ever hear the sound of weeping again, for I am creating. Friends, the work of Revelation is not some distant future hope. It's a current possibility. Every single minute of every single day, God will create a bright and glorious future, and God is creating it now. This church knows what I'm talking about, to be a part of the future creation and the current act of creating. I saw you participate it. Great day of service a couple weeks ago. I saw Dee mowing a yard. I saw Jesse jump in there with Hans and Jerry building a ramp. Elizabeth and Corinne painting a house down the street bringing clothes to help one roof and immediate necessities. These are physical current reminders, but they're a vision. Do you get that? They're a vision to us in our community that the creative and renewing work of God is not something to look forward to, not just something to look forward to. It's happening right now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. So may you know that vision. May you, in all your pain, sorrow, and humanity, know that God is making his place here now. May you hear John's revelation that no Caesar or Domitian or tyrant or struggle or hardship or disease can ever separate us from the love of God. May you rest in the knowledge and peace that those who go before us step fully into the embrace of the Almighty. May you know that God will make all things new, and may you know that God is already working to make all things new. And he's inviting us to be a part of that work every single minute of every single day. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.